Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kurt Damon. And hello, friends. This is Ben from A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy podcast with a brief scheduling update, and then we'll get you into some new content. As you've probably noticed, we've had no new content in August. We are very sorry for that. Um, Kirk and I have just not been able to get our schedules coordinated, but I am pleased to announce that we have a recording time scheduled soon, and we have lots of new content coming your way. Uh, There's a lot going on right now in the law. I don't want to spoil it, but uh, I am going to sprinkle in some rewind episodes here that may give you a hint about one of our upcoming topics. Uh, But in the meantime, as of right now, Kirk and I have three new episodes planned, and we're going to cover something we've talked about a lot on the podcast, but never actually devoted an entire episode to, and that is collectible card games. There's, uh, there's some wacky stuff going on in the world of Magic the Gathering specifically, but uh, the, the legal issues we're going to talk about really apply to any collectible card game, and we're really excited to dig into that. Uh, I also have four Edamame episodes in my email that uh, Kirk has recorded. Um, so I've made the executive decision to um, release those, but not in our normal numbering scheme. Uh, I'm going to preserve that for our more traditional episodes, uh, just for logistical reasons, so I can just kind of release those Edamame episodes now and not worry about whether it's going to you know, get screwed up with um, the regular numbering system. Uh, But they will be featured at the top of the website as the newest episode. So if you're looking for our most recent one, you'll find it there. Uh, those will be coming out on a staggered schedule over the next several weeks. Uh, Kirk's four episodes, uh, plus, like I said, a rewind episode or two. And then we have our three new uh, traditional format episodes, the first of which should be out within the next week or two. Uh, So this episode is the first of Kirk's four Edamame episodes. So please enjoy that and just uh, know that there's a lot more content coming your way soon. Thanks. Hello, we're going to do another Edamame episode here. Um... This one I'm, uh, is going to be a little different. I'm going to talk about some science fiction. This is actually um, discussing the way patents oftentimes get treated in popular media. I know we've touched on this before, but I'm talking about it in particular, and I want to talk about it in conjunction with the season premiere of uh, season three of Roswell, New Mexico. Um, this was actually a topic that, that came to me. It was uh, brought to me by one of uh, the Twitter followers that I have, TP Tigger. Um, so thank you for this idea as to what it was. Um, but she is a, a patent agent herself and uh, had, had commented about sort of the uh, the interesting way that it was presented in conjunction with this particular season premiere. And it was uh, intrigued me enough that I, I looked into the episode and wanted to talk generally about it. So we have talked before about it, about the idea of how are patents treated in entertainment media and how oftentimes it's really talked about wrong. I know in one of the early season episodes uh, we talked about, and it's a movie I love to harp on, The Spanish Prisoner, which is an utterly brilliant movie if you haven't seen it. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful movie to see. Um, very good suspense movie. Um, the issue with it is is that the whole thing they're trying to deal with in conjunction with it is a stolen patent application. Um, and in many respects, what they're after, and the, the MacGuffin, I guess, for the movie as to what it is, is truly a MacGuffin. Uh, I mean, that movie, uh, there is no point behind it. But this one, I'm going to talk about it in conjunction with this uh, season premiere. It's called Hands um, of Roswell, New Mexico. To give you the premise behind this, just so you know, Roswell, New Mexico is not a show I watch. Uh, this was definitely something, um, again, they, this issue intrigued me, so I decided to watch this particular episode of the show. It's the only episode of the show I've seen, I've seen, um, and I have not seen uh, its precursor, Roswell, um, either. 
So I have to say I know very little about the basic premise of the show, but you know, being a season premiere, uh, it definitely was, I think, pretty clear as to what the basic premise of the show was and what was going on. For those of you who watch, uh, sorry if I misrepresent anything here as to what I got from it. Um, but for those of you who don't, the basic premise I'll give you, it's uh, mostly set in Roswell, New Mexico. A group of individuals who apparently are aliens uh, from, I think, a variety of different locations. Um, they all have some form of superpowers um, related to... You know what they do, um, and, and the, the survivors are displayed a little bit uh, in conjunction with the show. Uh, it's what we have. It appears that they're fairly specific, um, and they're clearly trying to understand what's going on, who they are. Um, there's some indications that you know sometimes their their superpowers are dangerous, and that is a sort of core element of this. Is that uh, one of the characters is is dying from uh, visions that she has because of her superpowers, um, and that it has to do with sort of seeing the future and a, and a predicted type of thing. The key element of what this relates to is the, the season episode does sort of end it clearly uh, this, the prior season ended on a cliffhanger um, which is immediately resolved and then the, uh, they jump to a one year later sort of video montage one of the characters at this point in time now works for what you uh, presume is some form of genetics lab uh, genetics company in California um, and they are developing a cure for, um, you know, the uh, neurophysiological uh, diseases. They mention Alzheimer's in conjunction with it. I get the impression this has something to do with the, the various alien superpowers here. Um, and it, it's... In my mind, and again, it was unfortunately I can't watch that particular scene again easily. Was generally portrayed as as wonder drug for various neurological diseases, um, and that that was um, is what it's portrayed as. the The element around the patent and the intellectual property is associated with this, and I'm going to leave behind, and I'm not going to talk about uh, the scene that introduces this and some of sort of the uh, interesting scene in conjunction with gene splicing uh, and the science that's discussed behind that, simply to say that that is uh, sort of nothing to do with gene splicing. But I want to talk about the, the portrayal of the patent, and the patent is talked about twice. The first instance it's talked about, you find out that they have uh, obviously invented uh, this important drug. It's ready to go. It's going to save lives. Um, you know, it introduces a neurophysiological thing, but there's discussions of a need to get past the FDA um, and to deal with FDA approval, um, which is an expensive process, an extremely expensive process in most cases, um, and usually takes some time. And there's discussion of the idea that that's being shortcut. Uh, you get that the boss comes in and sort of tells us it's being shortcut. How is it that they're doing it? And they're doing it very quickly because it's being shortcut as an anti-wrinkle cream. Uh, or anti-wrinkle treatment as opposed to uh, something associated with this, which you find out uh, in the statement is an appropriate use of it, but obviously not the intended use of it. Uh, so at that point in time, it's mentioned that, you know, there's a problem with introducing it that way because it's not going to get out there to help people um, because the company's going to have an, a 10-year exclusive uh, in the course of, of getting this uh, FDA approval with it, and that that's going to, you know, sort of chew up their patent rights um, and, and cause problems for the patent rights. Uh, later on in the course of the show, what you discover in conjunction with this is that the they, they both get sort of warnings on their phone uh, that the patent has been leaked. Um, you you get the sort of you know slightly strained scene I think as to um, the two coworkers again who are collaborators. Um, Liz is the, the sort of key one here. Uh, the other one I'm afraid I, I don't know the name again. Not being particularly good at the characters. Um, but the uh, 
has found out, you know, that this thing gets leaked. You find out that Liz is the one who leaked it um, or, you know, hypothetically could be the one who leaked it. Um, and the, the sort of discussion of, you know, what is the, that that's going to impact their careers. They could both be fired over it. This could be a problem because they can't continue to sort of do the life-saving research. Um, an element associated with this had to do with getting further grant money um, in order to continue to do their research. Um, and that that grant money is important. Uh, basically what comes out of it is because it's leaked, uh, they need to go in, they need to break into their lab. Um, they need to do something in the order to essentially stop the leak, um, to, you know, stop the, the sort of problems that are, that are going on in conjunction with this patent being leaked. Um, and that's, you know, what they're going to do is they're going to go in and they're going to fix this problem. So that's the, the two things that are, are sort of the premise of this. The reason I like talking about this is because when we think about it as a whole, the idea that, hey, you know, these people have developed what's effectively a, a life-saving cure or, you know, life, dramatically life-altering cure um, is, is a very logical premise for a scientific show. You know, that we have, hey, they've developed this and, and getting it out there is an issue. The basic premise of the how do we get it past the FDA um, is a very logical one. I mean, the, the FDA regularly does not approve uh, life-saving treatments. And, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion recently in the press uh, about the role of the FDA. Uh, that has been both around um, the Alzheimer's drugs uh, and the question as to whether or not they should um, have essentially given approval to an, an Alzheimer's drug, which, you know, may have questionable efficacy. Um and on the other side, the approval of the COVID-19 vaccines, both provisionally and full approval, which at the time I'm recording this, full approval has just been granted uh, to the Pfizer vaccine. It has not yet been granted to the Moderna, but that is expected to come soon. Um, and so, you know, you have sort of the competing interests of, what you know, what should they grant? What should they not grant? What is the role of the FDA? Um, obviously, with that being a, a popular question right now, uh, in the world um, and, and a debate sort of, you know, being had in the United States in particular, what is sort of the role of pharmaceutical regulation, the idea of this drug being held up by the FDA and that needing to make compromises is a very reasonable um, premise. The interesting thing about it is I see it as there are a number of sort of major mistakes that they make in discussing patent law, some of which I think are more forgivable than others. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of them flow from each other, but I think they really illustrate issues in conjunction with patent law. So the first thing is they repeatedly refer to this as being their patent. Um, and the first thing you really bump into with it is there's, there's two potential issues here. One, are they referring to it as, is, is it an actual patent? Is it a granted patent, something that's been patented? And the issue with it is, is if it's something that's been patented, um, a lot of their concern about it is misplaced. So the example I get into with this is something which is patented. If I, if I go out and I get a patent um, on my life-saving disease uh, treatment, once it's patented, the patent is granted, how to make that treatment is public information. Um, in order to get a patent, and we've talked about this in the show before, you have to file the application um, the application's reviewed, and at least at the point of grant, and oftentimes beforehand, that application is made public. Um, and again, the patent is always public. So patents are public documents. Uh, if you want to go to the United States Patent and Trademark Office, USPTO.gov, um, and do make sure it's .gov.com. We'll get you a law firm, or at least used to. Um, 
So if you go to USPTO.gov, you can search um, all the patents that have ever been granted by the United States. Um, there are other search engines in most parts of the world. Uh, the Japanese Patent Office has one. Uh, you can even search the Japanese Patent Office in English reasonably well. It's a lot easier to search it in Japanese. Um, but there's also ones for international patent applications. There are ones for European patent applications. Um, there are Canadian patent applications and, and patents that you can search. So the key about it is, is once a patent is granted and you have a patent, and again, I'm, I'm focusing on that word in particular here because that word has legal meaning. Um, that the document which is the patent is secret uh, is no longer secret the the file um that you go through to get that patent is no longer secret um at this point in time anybody can review everything that you filed with the patent office um to determine how to make it you're expect expressly expected to uh, it's a key element of the United States patent law that basically you have to grant public access to the document. The statement is is that you get a term of monopoly in exchange for public disclosure. That's the, the play off of it. The reason why that matters and the reason the purpose behind it is that the public disclosure will encourage further innovation. If I know how something works, I can further innovate from that. Um, the stereotypical, you know, favorite phrase, if I've seen further, it is because I stood upon the shoulders of giants. Um, and again, I can never remember which, um, I believe it's physicist that said that. I know I think it was somebody associated with the Manhattan Project, uh, but it is a famous quote. And, um, and one of the things that you have, you know, uh, from it, you know, the, the idea of continuing to sort of continue that scientific uh, revolution from what's already happened uh, requires it to be public. So that's our first premise. Uh, in all cases in, in the Reswell where they refer to it as a patent. Um, so if it is a patent, the concern that this has been leaked is, is nonsense. <laughs> and that's, that's sort of the initial problem. Uh, that you can't leak a patent. A patent is a public document to begin with. Uh, in fact, a patent is such a public document that you cannot prohibit copying of the patent document itself. Uh, patent documents are not covered by copyright. We've mentioned that actually on this show before. Um, you can go and physically make a copy of a patent from the United States Patent and Trademark Office. You can distribute those copies, and there is nothing the person who wrote it uh, as an author, again, a patent attorney commonly like me, can do about it. <laughs> it is not covered by copyright. Uh, there's certain ways um, where you can place certain portions of a patent application, such as if you include, uh, include computer code um, under a limited copyright where the person can still make a copy of the patent document but cannot actually use the code or make a copy of it outside of the patent document. But the patent document itself is public. So the idea of leaking a patent um, is, is literal nonsense. Um, it's, it's impossible. And that's the reason that I want to sort of want to focus on this. And I think one of those things that you sort of jump out, uh, where it jumps out at you when you're a patent attorney. And it's, it's something, again, that's common. And I think you see commonly throughout uh, entertainment literature is the idea of this presentation of that a patent is somehow secret, um, that there is somehow that the right of a patent can be lost by making it public. Uh, it's exactly the opposite. Um, a trade secret can be lost by the act of making it public, but a patent is public um, and therefore it cannot be lost. So I pick on that as sort of the first thing as to, hey, these characters are referring to it uh, as a patent. But what they're referring to here may not necessarily really be a patent. 
And what they're really maybe referring to is a patent application, the idea that we filed for an application for a patent. Now, patent applications are maintained in secret. They're maintained in secret in the United States for a minimum period of 18 months, unless you choose to make it public before then, which you can do. But the first 18 months of pendency of a patent application in the United States, it is secret. If you only file for patent protection in the United States, you may maintain the patent in se- patent application in secret uh, until the patent actually grants. Uh, and that's because the requirement of public publication at 18 months uh, and making the, the file public at 18 months has to do with international treaty. Uh, so basically, the United States has said, hey, if, we're, if you're under the international treaty, you're obligated to publish the application in 18 months. If you're not availing yourself of any right under the treaty, the United States patent law governs. The United States patent law says you may keep it uh, private up until the point in time that it actually grants. But when the patent is granted, it is a public document. So you can be referring to the idea of a patent application being secret, which is a much more logical statement here. The issue with it is, is they don't say patent application, they say patent. Um, and I hardly harp on this one because while it's an important word, it's a very common mistake uh, in the way people refer to it. Even patent attorneys, myself included, will occasionally say patent when we mean patent application. Um, And it's a problematic thing because they are different and they do have legal meaning. A patent application has no rights attached to it uh, other than certain preliminary rights related to its publication, which don't even attach until it becomes a patent. Uh, They just, they they, they get to jump back uh, a date of what happened during the patent an application process once it becomes a patent. Um, But a patent application is very different from a patent, and that's a sort of key thing to keep in mind about this. As I said, though, it is a very common mistake. People will, inventors will commonly say, my patent, when they mean my patent application. Um, And it's just because, again, you can understand the nature of the English language. It's a simple mistake. They're they're referring to the same thing. They're using different words, but those words do have legal meaning. And obviously, the concern here is the presentation in the media is the idea of what is a patent um, versus a patent application. So... We get that as the maybe what they're actually saying here is our patent application, uh, which could be a secret document. Um, so you definitely could have a secret document um, associated, you know, as a patent application. That secret document obviously could be leaked. Um, the key is in a patent application, you don't know whether or not a patent is going to be granted uh, in the end. So therefore, leaking it as a secret, if the patent wasn't granted, that could be made. The, the material in the patent application could be maintained as a trade secret if the patent is never made public. Um, so that is a possibility. And and for those of you who may be interested in sort of some of the nuances of patent law, that is a strategy uh, that is sometimes used. I mean, I have myself used it. Uh, most uh, patent attorneys use it at some point in time, where you will purposely keep applications from becoming public, from publication, if you're only applying in the United States, until they grant, uh, so that the um, if, if they don't grant, if the patent is not granted, you maintain the trade secret right and potentially whatever's in the application um, or at least maintain some confidentiality and don't tell your, your people how to uh, – your competitors how to do it. Uh, and again, that's the nature of patent application as part of that disclosure. You have to explain in the patent application how to do it. So the patent application would effectively need to disclose this is the drug um, that they are talking about, the intervention that they have, uh, which you know is this, is this you know, neurophysiological treatment. Um, and it would need to basically tell people how to do it to the extent that at least somebody in their uh, position in another company could copy it. So, you know, the patent application does have that kind of information. So if we treat it as the idea of it being a patent application. Suddenly, the idea of it being leaked makes much more sense. Uh, the patent application comes out and says, hey, the patent application has been leaked. This can give our competitors a jump on it. Uh, in particular, in conjunction with FDA um, regulated drugs, this can be an issue uh, because 
the the there are certain things that companies are allowed to do in sort of preparation for going to the FDA that they may not otherwise be able to do. They effectively can violate patents in certain ways in order to um, to, to prepare for the FDA. So long as they because the FDA process takes time. Uh, so this is an area of patent law. I don't get into a lot just because I don't work into pharmaceuticals that much, but it is a major uh, sort of major consideration of timing associated with the FDA and when patent rights. So we do have an issue there that, you know, if she's talking about a patent application and not a patent, it is definitely possible that, you know, this could be leaked, that that leak could present a uh, potential issue. Um, and that they could lose their jobs over. Um, now, obviously, an employment agreement, you know, leaking a trade secret is without any question under most uh, employment agreements grounds for termination. Um, his his concern is not unjustified. Um, you know, it's what you have here. That is very reasonable if we treat this as a patent application. So with that in mind, let's just assume they really meant patent application when they said patent. At that point in time, the second piece of this, um, the issue associated with we have to go and prevent this leak from happening. Um, we have to make sure that, you know, we that it isn't found out that we did it, you know, all those kind of associated issues um, around this uh, as to what we need to prevent are very reasonable considerations to take in mind. You know, this needs to be prevented. They readily could lose their jobs over this. Um, they readily could, you know, be, be terminated for cause. They readily could be liable for damages, um, you know, for doing this uh, from their employer. So, you know, there is a, a legitimate risk there. The concern you get into from that is if it is a patent application, the first presentation of this, which is, again, the idea of saying we're going for FDA approval, uh, we're doing it as this alternate, and that we have a 10-year license right, uh, and that 10-year license right, the, the fact that it's going to be licensed exclusively 10 years as conjunction with a, an anti-wrinkle um, treatment as opposed to this treatment for neurophysiological diseases um, is a major issue. The reason why I present that that's, a, that's kind of a strange presentation for a patent application is while a patent application can be licensed and commonly is, uh, it's highly unlikely that that would be licensed for an exclusive period of 10 years. Uh, patents run for a period of 20 years. Um, now, there could just be an exclusivity window in it. But again, taking the premise of the show, um, our scientist has worked here for about a year. Um, that does fit the patent application, by the way. Typically, patent applications pend for two to three years before they're granted. Um, so it does fit that she is really referring to patent application uh, at this point in time. It's an application which has been filed. Um, but it's interesting that a company would be able to license the technology on a pending patent application to somebody else that would sink in the money to get FDA approval. Um and pursue it as this way without any patent right granted uh, in conjunction with it, recognizing that it could readily be a couple of years before the patent right is granted from it. Um, and again, the 10-year window of exclusivity is kind of an interesting time period uh, to be talking about. Again, most of the time, if you were going to license a patent like this out uh, as an exclusive window, you would typically license an exclusive window. It wouldn't be surprising for you to license it as a 20-year uh, exclusive window um, because that is the term of a patent or license it for the term of the patent. Patent terms can be extended slightly beyond 20 years if it takes you too long to get through the patent office. Um, so th there is some stuff there, you know, that, that says, okay, they would have term on it. The issue is the implication is that somehow they would lose rights um, the course of the 10-year period, hey, because of this license, um, the, the whole concern for and the reason for leaking the patent application is because this is effectively going to cost them the ability 
um, to use this drug. So they're leaking it to the competitors so that the competitors can get it and use it as the neurophysiological drug. Uh, a couple problems with, with that. Obviously, one, at the end of the 10 years, those rights would presumably license back. Uh, they're now non-exclusive, so the, the original patent owner could obviously use it for any purpose. Uh, but if we can say, okay, yes, it's a period of 10 years that's being used exclusively for this purpose, um, it's a strange license. I guess that's the way I'd, I'd put it. Um, if I had a, a drug which obviously showed promise uh, as a potential, you know, cure for Alzheimer's, um, I could very readily, if it also had the um, the ability to be used as an anti-wrinkle cream, uh, make a deal with somebody to say you can use it exclusively, you can market it exclusively uh, as an anti-wrinkle cream uh, for in exchange for getting it through the FDA uh, on that ground. That is a very normal thing to do. But such an exclusive license would typically be uh, restric- restricted in scope um, to it being sold as an anti-wrinkle cream, not as it being sold as a as an Alzheimer's drug. Instead, it would be something where I could utilize it as the Alzheimer's drug. Um, I could treat it as, again, this neurophysiological effect um, that I would be allowed to pursue the FDA uh, over and do it even during your peer window of exclusivity. Um, in your 10-year window of exclusivity. Again, it's it's not that the contract they state there is impossible. Um, I would just say it is. It's a little implausible, um, you know, as to a ground as to how a contract like this would be created. It, it also has the idea of, again, the implication being we have to leak the patent in order to get the drug out um, and have it be out there. It uh, doesn't really fit, again, as a patent application. That patent application would eventually become public, Um so while it's secret now and leaking it is an issue, it would eventually become public. Uh, the, the nature of the patent becoming public uh, would then involve um, the, the competitors knowing exactly how to use it. Um, if the concern there is, hey, it's going to chew up our patent because of the fact that you know our, our patent stops, it doesn't stop people from using it as a neurophysiological drug, you have the same effect of the leak. Uh, if we have it in the course of it, we can do that. We may have this tangle to say, hey, yes, we've paid for a 10-year exclusivity in somewhere else. Um, but, you know, that's, that's just the nature of the contract. So, again, what I look at here is I think the major issue here is the reference to patent versus patent application. But also that the premise set up, if we look at it and say a patent application makes the latter need to prevent um, the, the leaking to occur or to, to sort of cover up the leaking – of whatever it might be, uh, saying it's a patent application, it does make the the 10-year licensing scheme discussed earlier, which is the whole premise for leaking it in the first place, um, implausible uh, from a, a sort of you know patent law point of view. Uh, we really have an issue that it would imply more of, okay, yes, they're getting an exclusive 10-year license to our patents, to our granted patents. You know, we're granting them exclusive. They are taking that through the FDA. Um, that is going to chew up more term um, because now that it's granted, you know, we're losing patent right. Um, it, it just makes it more reasonable to say that at that point in time, they probably are referring to a patent um, when they're referring to the, the potential sort of license scheme associated with it than to be referring to a patent application. The real thing with it is here is that this, this confusion could be readily gotten rid of if they simply treat the drug as a trade secret. Um, and saying, oh, it's our trade secret, it's not been uh, discussed. Well, now a trade secret is something which is maintained in secret, which revealing it could be an issue. Um, And obviously, if we're going to say, hey, yes, they can use it, they can market it this way as a trade secret, we're keeping secret the fact that it is an Alzheimer's drug. And that's really, I think, the key here. 
is the premise behind this, or again, and I, I say Alzheimer's drug because that's mentioned uh, later on as part of the motivation for developing things like this. Um, it, it's a neurophysiological drug. It, it's got second uh, secondary effects. And again, I'm not sure they specifically say what it's for. Um, I think that's one of those where I, I think it's a treatment associated with uh, the alien effects that are behind this. And obviously, people who are fans of the show, TV Tigger included, if you watch listen to this episode, you can feel free to point out, you know, sort of those... Um, those issues there as to you know my presentation of what exactly this drug is um but what we we look at is the the fact the drug definitely has two effects one of which is this cosmetic effect uh which is what's being used to get through the fda quickly the second one of which being an actual major sort of life-saving um you know potential effect beyond that um we could look at it and say, hey, a secrecy agreement could readily deal with the idea of saying we are keeping the, the secondary effect, the highly beneficial effect um, of this drug secret. Um, and that's the agreement that we have, that, that in order for them to get it, they want to keep the fact that it has a secondary effect completely secret. Um, that's a much more reasonable grounds for the idea of a 10-year exclusive license. Uh, as to what it is, it also makes leaking it a much more plausible thing. The reason I'm harping on this is because what we see here is just simply by presenting this as a patent in popular entertainment, they have actually made the issue less plausible and the the premise of this element of the show less plausible than if they had said it was a trade secret. But the reason they likely mention patent is because most people don't know what a trade secret is, but they do know what a patent is. So what we see here in conjunction with the entertainment presentation of the law um, is an issue where they are using the wrong term because it more generally pops to somebody's awareness of the idea that this is intellectual property. But unfortunately, their very choice of the form of intellectual property that they used actually makes the issues that the show has uh, in conjunction with this very implausible to those who actually understand what's going on. And this is a common problem in entertainment. Um, it is a common problem, uh, even in, in many respects, in news reporting of people not necessarily understanding the interaction of legal rights. This is not unique to IP law, but it is an area where IP law is an area where you see a lot of it because it's so little understood by people who aren't uh, practitioners. Uh, and hopefully as listeners of the show, you've gotten a little bit better understanding of these types of things. So it's things, again, where you'll occasionally see in popular press, hey, this you know music label artist is suing somebody for trademark infringement, when they're actually suing them for copyright infringement. Um, you know, two very different forms of IP law. Um, the, the thing being, and again, where I'm harping on this as to what it is, is you see these types of issues occur in entertainment. And for most part, and like this one, is this a write-off issue? Yes, it is. It's really not important to the show, um, to the premise of the show as to what's going on with this. That This is a patent, this is a patent application, or this is a trade secret. It simply matters of the fact that these characters need a reason in order to break into their place of employment, um, and to stop this thing from happening. Um, but the fact that they particularly chose one that unfortunately is appears plausible to the standard user but is very wrong is concerning to somebody like me who practices in this area because of the presentation of the law as being wrong. Um, and it's something where, you know, when you look at it in a more general thing, this can be an issue. So examples of things that have been talked about, um, there's a lot of discussion of the fact that when they started putting Miranda rights um, being read to criminals in crime TV – it meant criminals understood their Miranda rights better. It's a very interesting sort of phenomenon. It was actually studied. Um, I don't have the, the studies for you with it, but I remember learning about it in the law school with them talking about that they started putting Miranda rights in criminal shows. People understood their Miranda rights. The, the point of your Miranda rights is that 
the case, um, uh, Miranda, which went to the Supreme Court, said the people need to know they have this right. Um, you know, that you have a right to an attorney, that you have a right to remain silent. Those are constitutional rights in the United States. Um, you know, if somebody's trying to pressure you to speak, you know, if police are trying to pressure you to speak, you have a right not to. You have a right to tell them nothing until your lawyer arrives. Um, and that that's a very fundamental and important right in the United States. And the fact that it's portrayed that way is very fundamental and important in the United States in crime drama, not in true crime, um, in crime drama, in fictional crime, has actually made the right more understood and has carried out in some respects the purpose of Miranda more so than the idea of actually telling criminals their Miranda rights because now everybody knows that this is something um, that they have, that this is this is a fundamental right that they have under United States law. So presentations of law in popular media and in entertainment are important. And so when we talk about the idea of it being presented wrongly, uh, even in an area like this, which is very subtle and and very secondary to the purposes of the show's purpose here, it's a, again, it's a MacGuffin um, for the idea behind it. We have problems in the idea that you know, hey, people can get a misunderstanding from that. And as an IP law practitioner and as a patent law practitioner, knowing that people oftentimes misunderstand IP law, seeing it being portrayed with a sort of purposeful misunderstanding, or again, in this case, I wouldn't say it was done maliciously or it was done because they, they chose the wrong thing on purpose, but it was purposeful in the fact that they, they, they did choose the wrong thing, to, but they chose something which works. Um, to get across, uh, you know, what it is, even though if that thing may not be technically correct, uh, is concerning. Um, for those of you who happen to be interested in this issue, I'm going to plug another podcast here. Uh, one of the ones I like to listen to is Revisionist History, uh, Malcolm Gladwell's um, podcast as to what it is. Uh, I think he explores some absolutely fascinating subjects. He does a three-part analysis of The Little Mermaid. Um, and with the first uh, part of that, the first episode of that has to do with discussions of the law of the contract that uh, Ariel makes with Ursula. Um, which is actually an extremely interesting discussion on the presentation and the mistakes of presenting contract law um, in popular culture. Uh, so it's one of those where, again, I think it's worth you know talking about that this is not unique to IP. I'm, I'm focusing and I'm harping on this being you know sort of a, a piece in one particular show in conjunction with IP law, um, but it does appear pervasively, and it's a concern in other areas of law. And again, that's what that first episode discusses about. They have a lawyer on discussing you know the concerns of this being a presentation that this not being something that necessarily people when they're impressionable, kids when they're impressionable, watching The Little Mermaid should understand to be uh, the tenets and the understanding. Of contract law. So I'm kind of harping on it in conjunction with patent law. And again, treating it as the idea that, you know, Roswell, New Mexico, the premise of it, you know, being a show, a science fiction show about, you know, aliens, obviously having a lot of scientific components and sort of things like that. Should we really be presenting to, um, you know, potential scientists uh, bad science? Um, in this case, bad patent law um, and bad scientific law. Um, now, obviously, the show has other elements of bad science in it uh, as well. Um, and, and one can say, hey, well, it's just simply entertainment. And it is, uh, ultimately, in the end. But that's what this episode was about. It was one of the things I wanted to talk about. Uh, definitely thanks, uh, TV Tigger, for, you know, uh, posting up the, t the Twitter about, you know, noting this um, and, you know, giving me the spark to turn this into an episode. Uh, it is kind of a long episode, isn't it? A mommy episode, as it turned out. I did ramble a little bit there in the middle. Hopefully people are uh, okay with it. But obviously, if you want to talk about this further, uh, feel free to follow up. Um, and I'll turn it back over to uh, Ben and close this out. Talk to you later.
All right, thank you, Kirk. So like I said, we've got uh, three more Edamame episodes from Kirk coming. I might try and squeeze one in two, at least one rewind episode, maybe two, and then plus three more traditional episodes we've got planned um, for now. So a lot more coming your way. Stay tuned, and we look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded in St. Louis, Missouri. 